I, I lost all my filters in the first service because ESCOM attacked me last night. I, I don't know if ESCOM attacked you, but uh, it, it went, power went out twice last night, which is, I know this is a white person problem, but, but like, this DNA just doesn't handle that. And, and you know the thing, I grew up in Zimbabwe and it was fine, like no aircon, no, whatever, I was fine. But when you wake up in Durban, you, you swim, you have to like, Move the liquor out your way. And the, the only thing that you encounter is your breath. So it's like bang, it like hits you. And, then, and so that happened twice last night. And, uh, and so I'm on four hours sleep. And so stuff that comes out of my mouth, we're just going to delete the podcast. And, and I'm asking for grace on the front end. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a big week in South Africa. We had Sona. I'm calling you to order too. Uh, we had... We had Valentine's Day. Uh, I did a little bit of research on Valentine's Day. Do you know that it came from a a priest who actually prayed for a girl to get healed? She got healed. And then um, then he was about to be executed for for preaching the gospel. And uh, and he wrote a letter to her, your Valentine. And uh, and hence Valentine's Day. And I, I have struggled ever since then to understand how that resulted in the queue I saw at Woolies at the airport with all the guilty men. Because uh, you know what Valentine's Day is for 50% of men? The most terrifying day of the year because we, we know we're feeling guilty already. We know we're going to let you down. It's just how, how bad it is. For the other 50%, they're single and, and so they don't worry. But for us, it's terrifying. But I decided I was going to take the moment and I was going to build into my son. So I took my little eight-year-old son and I said, we're going to buy chocolates for mom and for Gracie. And his response to me was, dad, why don't they buy chocolates for us? <laughs> and, uh, and so I said to him, I said, my boy, because I'm old school, I said, my boy, I believe men protect, they provide, and they initiate in their family. That's what the, the role of men. And and then he said to me, okay, dad, so we need to go buy chocolates. And then, he, then I said to him, I said, my boy, do you like any girls in your whole school? He said, no, dad. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he said to me, someone asked him if, she, if he would be her Valentine, and he said no. <laughs> and, and so... I just realized I've come to the end of my parenting schools, uh, skills, so I said to him, okay, we'll get chocolates for the girls and you and I will get sweets. And, and off we went. That was, that was it. Valentine's Day done. But uh, it has been a big week in, in the life of the country. And the noise that has come out of there has been scared. We've got a scared country. And, uh, and so I'm going to speak into being a courageous community in a scared com- country, but I, I want to kind of set it up with this. I do premarital. Um, I, I sometimes run the whole course, sometimes I play part. And uh, I've been doing premarital. And, and the joy for me about premarital is firstly when I see the couples come in. Because what's, what's happened is that one of, the, one of our congregants has basically done the flirt to convert. You know, you know like we start the relationship and then they'll come to faith along the way. So that's, that's what's happened. And so they're sitting there and you can see the guy who's been dragged in for the first time. And he's like... He's terrified, like he's not terrified, he's just like, he's like I am when I go to the school presentations. Like he's like, ah, do I have to be here? So you see all their faces. And uh, if you got dragged here today, I just want to say, well done for coming. I understand how you feel. I'll try and be funny. And I'm praying 
that Jesus grabs your heart. Because I kind of got dragged into a church through circumstances and Jesus grabbed my heart. If you'll open it a little, he might sneak in. And if he sneaks in, you'll be changed forever. So grab hold of that. But anyway, the thing about premarital is that what you do in premarital is you name the elephants in the room. You've heard that term, like name the elephant in the room, it's the issue in the relationship or it's the issue in the organization or the issue that nobody wants to talk about. So in premarital, I get to name all the issues. So I name the sex issue in the room. And then I name the money issue in the room. And then I name the how many kids you're going to have issue in the room. These, all these elephants, I've just named all the elephants, the mother-in-law we, we just, we name all of these things. <laughs> and then, uh, you, you put the centers on there. Anyway, and then, uh, and then I try and handle all, this, all the, the circus of elephants in the, in the room. It's, it's a fantastic time. But I was thinking about this elephant in the room, and I thought when it comes to Christianity, there is a massive elephant in the room, and it is this. How come... So many Christians live their lives as happy or, or even sometimes less happy, less free, less generous, less kind than the non-Christians around them. I know it's like hectic to say to Christians, but, but I want to address this because I think so many Christians live without the joy that we're promised and the peace and the grace. And, and I want to talk about how you live in that space as opposed to looking worse than non-Christians because I, I think for a lot, of the, a lot of our lives, most of us are defined by the same fears. You've heard what came before candles in South Africa. Yes, come. We, we, we think about the, the same fears. We, we're terrified of the same crime, the same, and we have the same language, the same thinking, the same culture as the non-Christian world around us. And the result is that we don't carry the joy and the peace and the grace that God wants us to carry into this world. And so I want to get into this issue because the reason we started this series, A Courageous Community, was because when you're in one, and this is why we're trying to get you all into groups and then change the narrative in the group. When you're in a courageous community, you will sit down and you'll go, flip, I am struggling with where the economy is right now. And someone will say to you, yeah, but I came from Zim and, uh, and I've been in a bad economy and I've watched my God provide for my needs according to his riches and glory again and again and again. This is what happens in courageous community. I was, I was chatting to Gugu the other day and I was talking to her about how many businesses closed and she said, she said to me, Ross, this is the perfect setup for God to do something utterly incredible. You, you see what's happening? We're having a conversation about what is reality and she's bringing faith into it and suddenly the conversation gets a life of its own. And if you're going to be potent for the kingdom, you need a community like that around you. That when your marriages really pair, you need some people who are going to sit around you and go, my marriage was really pair and God came in and he gave us grace and he poured friends and his Holy Spirit into us and we walked through it and you can too. You need that kind of community when times are tough. And Unfortunately, the church is kind of splintered and everybody's far apart and I want to bring people into those communities and then shape them so that your life matters. So this is the heartbeat behind the series. So I'm going to end today 
talking about the fuel of a courageous community. And where's, where's Justy? There he is. Come, come, come. I, what I'm going to do today, I'm going I'm to do some teaching. I, I experimented in the first service. It didn't go well. But uh, uh, I'm going to do some teaching. I want to I take a principle that you see in the Old Testament, and then I'm going to tell you a story in the New Testament, and I'm going to link the principles together. Now, it, it may work. It, it'll definitely be better than the first service. So, so this is good. Justy, it is good to have you. Give, give him a hand for preaching now. So one of the things that I have been wanting to do this year is I've been wanting our church to get into courageous communities and I've been wanting our church to get into intimacy with God or, or worship. And uh, honestly, if, if you're not a Christian looking in, just bear with me. You're like thinking when they were singing New Wine, you were going like, I hope they're gonna give it now. And like, if, if that's where you're. But uh what I wanted to do was get us to, as a community, be a community who constantly worship. And, uh, and so I've been saying to Justy, I want as, as a staff to worship every day. I want, I want to drive it into the church. And, and so Justy and I have been reading some books and we've been studying some theology together to get a deeper understanding of the intimacy with God. And, and so we're going to look at David and then I'll, I'll go to a text. So... Welcome, and speak to mm -hmm. us about some of the stuff that we see in David that we long for here. Yeah, so um, David was a kind of simple, humble shepherd boy that got rapidly promoted <laughs> overnight to be king over the people of Israel. And uh, we all know the story of David. He loved God. He worshipped him all the time, night and day, and he had this beautiful, just intimate relationship with the Father. And he gets promoted to be, to be king over the people of Israel. And what he steps into, he has a bit of a picture of the context, but what he, what he steps into at the time is basically a, an economic recession and spiritual poverty. So the people of Israel have um, Saul led them to worship essentially Satan and idols. And for 30 odd years they had ignored the Ark of the Covenant, which I'll explain now what that is and what that means. And so Israel found themselves in this like horrendous place, once an, a, a nation and a people with richness and life were now at the absolute worst. And so David gets promoted and he's placed into this context. And just imagine this, like I said this at the, the first service, imagine today or tomorrow, one of you, being told that you're going to be president of South Africa tomorrow. Like, that's what you've got to realize. That is what it would have felt like. And, and so he kind of finds himself in this situation that needs a lot of help. And you can imagine the leaders and the government that have been structured around him are wondering, what's David going to do? What's his first step? What's his, his act of leadership? What, how's he going to get more money into our city? How's he going to restore this land? Like, what is, what is his strategy? And he goes, I want you to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. It's the first thing he does. And so what he does is he sends off thousands of soldiers and worshipers and they go and fetch the Ark of the Covenant. Now you must understand, the Ark of the Covenant is the manifested presence of God on earth at that time. So wherever that went, there was blessing, there was provision. And David understood this because he knew it and because he had experienced it in his relationship with God as a shepherd boy. He understood how valuable the presence of God was. In life, And so he sends the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant to get brought back to, the, to um, the city of Jerusalem. 
and to be placed on top of Mount Zion, which is essentially a hill in the middle of Jerusalem, and get placed there. And then what he does is he goes and he hires 4,288 odd worshippers. Not odd. That's that many worshippers. Um, just imagine Cyril at the 2020 Asana said, I'm going to hire a bunch of musicians to fix our problems. <laughs> you wouldn't be stoked. And um, so he hires all these musicians. And he places them there in this tent in front of the Ark of the Covenant to worship 24-7. Now there's, there's a bunch of stuff that's really powerful here that I want you to understand. That prior to this, the Ark of the Covenant needed to remain hidden behind a veil. And only one priest who had lived a life of holiness would be able to actually approach the presence of God. If anyone just touched it, came closer, they'd be struck down and killed because of our worldliness, our sin that we carry with us. Now, because of Jesus, we understand that we get to approach God freely through grace. So back then, there were all these rules and religion, but David had this, this conviction, this revelation of intimacy with the Father that not many people would have understood and would have found quite offensive because to just put the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of our stage here and then say, anyone's welcome, like that was unheard of. In fact, people would have probably been trembling and gone, I ain't going near that thing. But here's what he did is he created a culture and a, he created this, um, this, just this, this presence of worship around the ark because he understood the value of God's presence. He understood the holiness of the God that they were worshiping. And so he placed all these worshipers to worship 24-7. And there were, like I said, there were 4,000 out of them. And um, they would do four things consistently. They would praise they would give thanksgiving, they would intercede and pray, and they would prophesy. And you can imagine, like, on the top of this mountain, there are thousands and thousands of people worshiping 24-7. You're hearing these songs. And this, the song that is being created, the tone that is being created, and the thing that is spilling out over into the city and the stories that are coming out of there, as they begin to praise God, as they begin to give Him thanksgiving, because they are reminded of who he was, what he's done, the, the acts, the miracles, the deliverance from slavery, all these different things. They're reminded of those stories again. The praise starts to go up again. People are praying and interceding on, on the city's behalf. They're prophesying, so they're declaring truth over the circumstances. We declare truth over this economic reality. We declare truth over this poverty. We declare truth over the situation. We continue to praise. We continue to praise. I mean, imagine the environment. So suddenly the city has gone from being a place that was down and out to now being a people that have fallen madly in love with God all over again because David understood the value of worship and what, what the power of song and changing your internal tone and changing your song and changing what you say every single day to be something that glorifies the Father, not lives in a, in a um, place of fear around our circumstances and what we're facing right now. Um, speak to us about, because that's profound, but let's just talk about David. He, he should have been king, but he dressed in priestly robe. Oh, yeah. I left that out. Sorry. <laughs> um, so again, humble, simple David. Nothing complicated, nothing lavish, nothing royal. Gets promoted. And everyone expects him to be their next king. And what he does is he goes, no, there's only one king. And that's our God. 
So I told you what he did to establish that by bringing the ark. But what he did is he didn't put a crown on his head. Is he actually dressed himself as a priest because he would rather people see him as someone that deeply loves God and wants to be seen as someone that is close to God, that is allowed to be close to God, that has, I mean, you have to know that what he did was also offensive because he wasn't technically allowed to dress as a priest. He hadn't earned it. He hadn't lived that life. He hadn't done everything that they needed to do to, to be a priest. So he puts on these garments and he goes, I'm going to be a worshiper. That's who I am. I am going to be a worshiper. Yes, you've given me authority, but that does not change the fact that I'm a worshiper through and through. And, through. and so he does that and he promotes God the rest of his life. And I think for 33 years, Israel established this pattern of praise and worship every single day. And this city and these people completely changed their environment. And you can, I just want to add something on the end. You can imagine that on Mount Zion, David would have appointed worshipers to do the job, but the crowds would have come with time because the stories would have got out. And this is, what this, that, this is where I want to land with this because this is why it's so important for us as a church. Imagine our worship was heard of beyond these wars. Because no matter what we saw in the news, no matter what we heard on the radio, we understood who it was that we worshipped. And we understood what it meant to praise Him no matter what. And what started to happen is the city of Dermis started to hear about this church olive tree that was seeing miracles and breakthrough and people living these abundant lives in God's presence. And they want to come here. They want to see it for themselves. I went to Bethel like four years ago. Sorry, I'm going tangent. You can just... I went to Bethel like four years ago. And I didn't understand that idea of manifested presence of God. Like, like I got it in the sense of like Jesus is in me. He lives in me and I connect with him through that. And I feel him and I experience the Holy Spirit in that way. But I'd very rarely walked into a room and gone, Wow. What is going on here? And I, I walked into their, they call it a sanctuary. I walked into their sanctuary, their auditorium. And I just broke down. It was like God just met me right then and there. I didn't have any expectations. I just went, cool, we're coming to worship. I'm pretty excited. Bethel sings some great songs. Walked in and I like fell on the floor. And that for me was because they had cultivated something special in God's presence around worship. That they knew that what they had stewarded in their building, in their area, as a people, when people walked in, that they would just start singing and lives would just begin to get set free. And that is what we're supposed to be doing here. That is the vision and the idea God has for us church, is that people will walk in and they won't be set free because we preach well or we sing well. They'll be set free because they feel the presence of God more than ever. And they walk in and feeling in despair and they feel broken and they feel lonely and they have no money and they feel richer than any person they've ever... <laughs> When they come in here, sorry, I'm just, but that is the idea of his church. David gave us a glimpse. Jesus has given us opportunity and it's our job to grab onto it and to run with this thing. Amen. Cool. Give him a hand. Out of that principle, Israel went over 32 years and became the new superpower. Now, what would have happened is that the disciples had that as a reference point. If you want to win, you make your life 
about declaring the goodness of God, giving thanks to God, prophesying what God's going to do, and praying. And so their reference for that would have shaped how they did life day to day. Now, here's why it's so important. We try to do this abundant, joyful life, but we try to do it by strongly being by ourselves and maybe reading the Bible a little bit in the morning and, and maybe singing a song on the way to, to work. And, and we wonder why we leak so fast. These guys, what they were doing is they were coming together to praise and worship regularly. And so you see the story, and I'm just going to quickly, I'm going to give myself eight minutes. You see the story where Peter and John go and they pray for a lame man at a gate called Beautiful. And uh, when they get there, the guy's begging, and so they, they walk up to him, and they say, silver and gold I do not have, but this is what I do have, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And his ankles that have been lame for 40 years, it seems, suddenly are strong, and he starts dancing, and he starts shouting, and the result of everybody who knows him seeing him doing this is that they bring all their friends. And in that moment, 3,000 people get added to the church, but the the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests, they see this and they go, this is a problem because these guys are preaching about Jesus. And so three hours of sermon, it might feel like that today, three hours of sermon later, they arrest Peter and John. Have you ever done something good for God and then felt like you got smoked? Felt like you got taken out? You know, you you tithe and then the next thing you lose a customer or you, you say, I'm not going to have sex before marriage and then you're single for a long time. Like, uh, <laughs> the disciples expected that. They thought differently about it. So they go back to their mates after they've been arrested, slept in the cell, interrogated the next day. In, in fact, whilst they're interrogated, the priests say, man, these guys are clueless, but I can tell they've been with Jesus. Slight paraphrase, but they, they say that. But then the disciples, after they've been threatened, beaten, and put in jail, come back to the rest of the disciples and they say this. They say in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. And they didn't say, God, this is not fair. Instead, they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You know, Acts is like highlights. Every chapter is like a year. So, so like these are highlights. So they didn't capture the whole prayers. I think the prayers went something like this. Sovereign God, you're in control. You created everything. It's all yours. You started it. You can end it. The stars were your idea. You made the earth by speaking. You spun it with your thoughts. You hold it together with the power of your word. Every square centimeter of every part of this universe belongs to you. But it, because it was by you and through you that it all exists and it all exists for your glory. There is, isn't one part of of any of this universe that you can't look at and say, that is mine and I have a plan for it. You are sovereign over everything, including our economy. See, that's how you pray. You, you bring the reality of who God is into the smallness of where we're at. 
And in that, something shifts. That's what David was doing. That's what these guys are doing. They, they go and he says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. And, and you said these words as a prophecy written thousands of years ago. Why do the nations rage and people's plot, plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then they interpret the prophecy. They say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You know what they're saying? God, you've had this thing in your mind from the start to the finish. And though I feel like I just lost my job and I'm dying, or I just lost my marriage and I'm not going to get through this, or I just got cancer and I'm not going to make it, you knew about this from the start and you have a plan for this to get it better. This is what they're saying. They, they keep on declaring God's bigness into their situation. And then they say, now, Lord, hear their threats. There are lots of threats. Lots of views with anxiety disorders. Lots of people here scared of where their life's going. Now, Lord, hear their threats. Now, Lord, hear the culture's threat. Hear the, hear the demonic threat. Hear the threat of depression. Now, Lord, hear what the doctors are saying. Now, Lord, hear their threats. And stretch out your hand and give us great boldness. Give us the thing that got us into trouble. They pray this, give us great boldness and may many signs and wonders occur by the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They, they pray this prayer and here's what's going on. When you bring the size of God into the crime, you start finding God changes you to become someone who brings life in the crime. They started off that prayer going, we're in trouble, God. By the end of their prayer, they're going, give us boldness so we can go back again. If we're going to live effective lives in South Africa, in this setting, we're going to do it because our voices and hearts and minds and community have decided that we are going to be courageous and we're going to keep bringing the bigness of God into the smallness of our situations and we're going to declare his goodness and thanksgiving, prophecy and worship. We're going to intercede for one another and we're going to build courageous communities that change what's happening around. So this year, get yourself into a life group. And when you're in that life group, don't tolerate thinking that doesn't include the bigness of God. And watch how your life changes this year. Next week, we're going into a new series, but I don't want this series to leave you. And so I'm asking that you take this seriously and you get yourself connected into this church. But I'm going to wrap up here. Heavenly Father, I pray that something of your spirit so infuses the life of this church, God, that we will declare... We are living for the glory of your name. Give us boldness to face our threats. In Jesus' name, amen.